This morning, I want to speak to you about uh, Isaiah. Now, I understand that Alan down here has been speaking to you about Isaiah over this past few months, this year, and I trust that I don't uh, go over things that he's already done, but uh, I just want to share with you uh, in particular about the, some of the prophecies that are in the book of Isaiah. One of the things about the book of Isaiah that's really interesting is that it, it parallels the Bible in so many ways. For example, it has 66 books, or 66 chapters of the Bible has 66 books. It's divided into two uh, sections. You've got 39 in the first section, and then it follows with a second section of 27, just like the Bible. And uh, so it's really an interesting, interesting book, and it's full of wonderful passages and it's uh, after the Psalms it's the most quoted by, uh, uh, book of the Bible that's in the New Testament so it really is a, a worthwhile book reading and studying but uh, one of the things that uh, I was asked to do over at Jester Street Bible Church where I fellowship uh, was to do a talk on Isaiah chapter 13 through to chapter 27 now I promise you I'm not going to do that this morning but uh, I don't think I could even read all those chapters in, the, in a half hour, and they insist on a half hour sort of thing. So um, this morning I'm just going to look at chapter 13. And it, it's uh, an interesting study. I hope you find it interesting anyway. Isaiah, along with a number of other prophets, spoke about the nations surrounding Israel. And uh, if we can see the map that we've got, have we got that coming up somewhere? There's a um, whole lot of different nations that are spoken about, and we have all these different things that were happening, and th these were during the time that, um, that Isaiah was prophesying, and uh, we have th the number of different kings that were reigning from Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, and uh, then um, Uzziah was the, I think it was Uzziah, at the end. Now, if we can look at the next one, chapter 13. Uh, oh, sorry, I'll just carry on here. We've got a whole list of different prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, and Zephaniah are all prophesied around the same period of time. And uh, so Isaiah is the, the king, if you like, of all these great prophets. And uh, there's all these different nations that they prophesied about. And uh, we see the, they are all surround the nation of Israel, or Judah, as it was at that time, because the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel had uh, gone into exile by that stage. So when we come to chapter 13 through to chapter 27, we've got a whole list of nations that, uh, that Isaiah looks at. Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Cush. Uh, that's the upper Nile region, which is south of e Egypt. We have Egypt and Egypt and Cush again, and Babylon again, and Edom, that's Esau's descendants, and Tyre, and then the rest of the earth, that is us guys. Rather than trying to cover them all this morning, we'll just consider the nation of Babylon. So Isaiah starts out in this particular passage with these words in Isaiah chapter 13 verse 1, and he says, a prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah the son of Amos saw. This and the oracles that follow uh, describe some of God's judgments which were to come upon these nations. And they were going to be carried out against the nations that surrounded Israel. Now it shouldn't be surprising to you that God starts with the nation of Babylon. After all, 
Babylon, which is in the, what we call Iraq today, was the original seat of, of civilization. It wasn't Africa, it was Babylon. And it's the birthplace of lots of false religions, as described in the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So it's logical that, Gen uh, that um, Babylon would be the first in the list of nations that God would deal with when Isaiah prophesied. Um, and the interesting thing about Babylon is that when Isaiah was prophesying, Babylon was part of the Assyrian Empire. It wasn't the dominant world power. So you've got Babylon down here in the bottom corner. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Babylonia was subject to the rule of the uh, uh, Assyrians. It would be more than a hundred years before Babylon rose up and overthrew the Assyrian king. And uh, th that was when Babylon took control of the Assyrian army and uh, the empire. So when Isaiah was writing these words, no one would have contemplated that Babylon would become the dominant power in the future. And so we look at God's instrument of judgment. Isaiah chapter 13 verses 2 and 3 says, Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those who are prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Now Isaiah begins this oracle and he leaves no doubt about who's in charge. It's God that's in charge of history. And it's God who's going to carry out the judgment that he describes in the following chapters. Note that as God speaks in verse 3, it is God who commands his warriors. He is the one who orders those he prepared for battle to execute judgment. His promises will be triumphant. All Isaiah describes is God's idea and God's work. We come back to the description of the judgment of Babylon, but for the Jews who are reading this oracle, it would be easy for them to think that they were the people that God is describing in verse 3. After all, they were God's chosen people, weren't they? It would be logical for them to think that they are the ones that God is going to use to punish their enemies. After all, they'd been set apart by God so that they would expect to be used by God in this process. But when uh, Isaiah finishes describing the judgment in itself and finally identifies the one who God has prepared in verse 17, Isaiah's audience is in for a big surprise. For he says, See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. It's not Judah that God is going to use after all. It's the Medes. Now at this point in time, most of the people in Israel and Judah would probably never have heard of the Medes. They wouldn't have any idea who they were. But God in his complete wisdom and sovereignty will make the Medes his warriors and he will use them to carry out his judgment upon Israel's enemies. Isaiah began his book by describing the judgments that were about to fall uh, or this section of the book, by describing the judgments that were about to fall upon Israel and Judah. He does this because God wants them to realize how unfaithful they really were. And to add insult to injury, since they've not been faithful to God and serving him, God's going to consecrate someone else, in this case the Medes, to carry out his will. When God preserves a remnant from Israel and Judah, he does that to bring them back 
to the task of building his kingdom. Now, being chosen by God has privileges and it has benefits, but it also carries a great deal of responsibility. If we're not faithful in carrying out the tasks that God has asked us to do, he will raise up someone else to do the job. His purpose will be carried out, as Job discovered, when God said, I, um, I know that you can, or Job said to God, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42 verse 2. We know that there have been times in our lives when for some reason or other, we've chosen not to heed God's call to carry out his will on earth. But God isn't hindered one bit. He simply used someone else who was more obedient. When things like this happen, our walk with God gets damaged in the process. We also miss out on the blessing and the joy that could have been ours if we had been obedient. Therefore, we need to take the opportunities that God gives us so that we can be used to carry out his purposes and plans and ways. And so the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is the day of the Lord's judgment. And this covers chapter 13, verses 4 to 16, and 18 to 22. In chapter 4, I mean, in, in chapter 13, verse 4, he says this, Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude, like an uproar among the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is massing or mustering an army for war. They come from far away lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and his weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp and every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. And it reminds us of dear Jenny, doesn't it, this morning? Let's think of her and remember her as she goes through the process shortly of delivering a little healthy baby. But God uses that description to describe what it will be like for the people who are in line for the judgment that comes from God. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, rarer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All those who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. 
They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flock. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell. And there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds. Jackals her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand and her days will not be prolonged. Very strong, very powerful words. But this was describing the, the fate of the Babylonian kingdom. We'll have a look at some of the most significant aspects of the day of the Lord together. Firstly, um, in verse 12, we see that monetary values will, will crash. Now, in the Western world, including New Zealand, we're simply printing more money to throw at the system. The USA today is now the world's leading debtor. Have you ever tried to imagine how much a trillion dollars is? That's American trillion, so it's a million billion, and a billion is a million million, according to the Americans. Well, I haven't got one, but if you had a $100 note and you stacked $100 notes on top of each other, a stack of $1 million would reach about this height, about a metre high. That's a million dollars in $100 notes. And we just find that hard to imagine, don't we? Well, if you multiply that million by one million to get a billion American dollars, that stack would be over a kilometre high. And so we can see it on the second one there. That's taller than the tallest building in the Middle East, the Burj Khalifa. That's just a billion. Now you multiply that by a billion again, and uh, you, had have, you would have a stack of $100 bills that are over a kilometre high. Now you just can't imagine that, can you? Well, last night when I looked at the um, US debt clock, and if you ever look at it, it's quite interesting. It's got all the different things that are happening in America. That thing, you can see it, it's like a speedometer, and it, but it's got a whole series of numbers, and it's just spinning like crazy. And uh, last night at 9 o'clock, they owed $28.99 trillion. That's a stack of $100 bills that reaches up 29 kilometres high. Um, just can't imagine it, can you? Every person, man, woman, and child in the United States of America collectively owe $87,000 each. If you limit it to just the people who pay taxes, that's $230,000 each. Now, if you were asked everyone in this room to put $230,000 to pay off the government's debt today, I don't think many of us would be able to do it. It's an unimaginable debt and it's growing astronomically every day. And it cannot keep growing like this indefinitely. One of these days, the world's financial system is going to crash. Now, the United States used to be the world's leading lender. It's now the world's largest debtor. 
The second thing that God tells us about the coming judgment days is that in the planetary or patterns will not be the same. In the book of Job, chapter 26, God spoke about the way that he balances the earth and space. He said he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Now, if you just think about this for a while, you'll be overwhelmed by the Lord's ability to protect us. Do a little research about asteroids and meteors and the potential damage that they could do to the earth if they struck the earth. The fact that we live every day without being destroyed by a meteorite is a miracle. The next thing that we find about, about the day of the Lord's judgment is that will, there will be violence, it will, that violence will be rampant. In verses 13 through to 16, we live in a violent society today. Murder rates are higher than ever. When I was a boy, and it doesn't feel that long ago, but I, I guess it is, um, when I was a young fellow, if there was a murder, it was front page news. Today, it's just on the back page or somewhere in, inside, and it's just a little wee bit about it. It's such a common event. Murder rates today are higher than ever. Just think about road rage, bullying, the lack of respect for those in authority, people going ballistic, domestic violence, physical abuse of spouses, children being killed. Think about the abuse of the elderly. All of these are epidemic in our country. Every day in the West, thousands of unborn babies die when they are run through abortion clinics. Do we think that God doesn't care? Is he simply ignoring these problems? Is he ever going to step in and right these wrongs? Well, the answer is yes, he will. And how he will do it will surprise us. In this case, the Lord was going to use the Medes to punish Babylon. He, who he will use to judge us is yet to be revealed. The Medes were people who lived on the border areas of the country of what we call today um, Iraq and Turkey. Today that area is lived in by the Kurds. Uh, you remember how the media used to lambast George W. Bush because the UN couldn't find any weapons of mass destruction when they, they got into Iraq. Well, hello. What did Saddam Hussein use to kill the Kurds? He killed thousands of them. He used weapons of mass destruction, namely to poison gas and indiscriminately kill off men, women and children. Those weapons of mass destruction were shipped to Syria before the US attacked Iraq. The Medes of Isaiah, the Medes of Isaiah's day were not interested in gold and silver. In other words, they couldn't be bought off. In verse 18, Isaiah makes an incredible statement about the future of Babylon. Verse 20, he says, she will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flocks. It was once the most beautiful city in the world, if you'd like to put the next one up. Um, it was the most beautiful city in the world. And uh, it says that, I'll get it right, uh, we haven't got the right slide yet, have we? Yeah. 
Uh, okay, it's supposed to be a f- picture of, the, of, of Babylon itself. But anyway, well, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll get there. It was once the most beautiful of cities. However, modern conditions are like a version of a ghost town. To show that the Bible is not the word of God, all someone needs to do is go and rebuild Babylon and for people to live there. And that was Saddam Hussein's uh, aim. He wanted to rebuild the city of Babylon, to bring it back to its former glory. He wanted to establish himself as the modern-day version of Nebuchadnezzar. The godless of America even contributed $700 million toward rebuilding the city of Babylon. But Saddam, he did start work on the rebuild. However, it never measured up to uh, any of the past descriptions. That's because, as Isaiah stated, God's punishment on Babylon still stands. If we flick through, it's not flicking through very well. Okay, I I apologize for that. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, okay, sorry about that. Um, Just flick it through again. That's what it looked like today. This is part of the restoration that um, Saddam Hussein did. And that's part of his palace. And so he compared himself very much to King Nebuchadnezzar and he thought that if he could rebuild that city, he would be the great king. No one lives there today. It's like an old tourist park that is closed. The city was all dressed up but had nowhere to go. You can be assured that if the Lord said something will happen in his timing, it will happen as we read in the last verse. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. Her days will not be prolonged. We see the concept of near and long-term fulfillment of prophecy here. This is clear when we look at the day of the Lord and the prophecies of Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Isaiah. The concept is sometimes referred as the prophetic tense. You have the near-term fulfillment. Babylon was conquered by Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. This near-term fulfillment is repeated by Isaiah in chapter 45 where Cyrus is named as the brilliant military leader of the Medes and Persians. The same event is recorded for us in the book of Daniel chapter 5 where we read the account of how the Medes entered Babylon while Belshazzar and his, uh, his officials were engaged in a drunken party. Cyrus executed Belshazzar and he took control of Babylon and he put Darius in charge of the city. However, Isaiah's prophecy was not completely fulfilled at that time. You see, the Medes and the Persians, they conquered Babylon by diverting the water from the Euphrates River, which flowed through the city. And by diverting the river, they were able to then march into the city along the riverbed, which the which the Babylonians hadn't protected. There was no great battle that raised the city. Accordingly, the city was not destroyed at that time as the Babylonians surrendered in order to spare their city from the destruction that usually followed such a conquest in those days. You see, it wasn't until the 3rd century BC that Babylon even began to decay significantly. And by the time the Muslim conquest came about in the 7th century AD, the city was completely destroyed and deserted. Therefore, it's obvious that there also must be a long-term fulfillment of prophecy. There are still elements of this prophecy that are yet to be fulfilled. 
In what was known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus makes a number of references to Isaiah chapter 13. He sees in Matthew 24 verse 8, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. In Isaiah 13 verse 8, it says, they will writhe like a woman in labor. In Matthew 24 verse 19 says, how dreadful it will be in those days for a pregnant woman and nursing mothers. Isaiah 13 verse 18, they will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Matthew 24, 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. In verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That was the words of the Lord Jesus himself. In Isaiah 13 verse 10 it says, The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. We see very similar language in Joel's description of the day of the Lord. All of these describe with consistency the events uh, that are talked about in Revelation chapter 6 after the opening of the sixth seal. Revelation 6 verses 12 and 13 says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as the figs, as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. There are several other parallels between the, this passage in Isaiah and the book of Revelation as well. Unfortunately, we don't have time to look at them all this morning, but you might like to try and find them for yourselves in this coming week. However, there's another thing that I would like to highlight for you, if I may. The list of wild animals in verses 20 to 22 seem quite strange. You know, we see some of these things like ostriches that are not native to the area. But some commentators suggest that Isaiah is using the picture of wild animals to describe evil spirits of some kind. Legend has it that the nomadic Arabs will not stay in the area overnight because they believe that after dusk it is full of and haunted by evil spirits. This passage in Revelation 18 corresponds closely to these verses in Isaiah. They appear to support the idea that the wild animals listed by Isaiah are references to evil spirits. Revelation 18 verse 1 says, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven and he had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor and with a mighty voice he shouted fallen fallen is Babylon the great she has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit a haunt for every unclean bird a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal so it's clear that much of what Isaiah writes about in this chapter is yet to be fulfilled and is still being fulfilled. The judgment is going to be terrible. And although God's children are going to experience times of trouble, the Bible is very clear that there's a coming time of great tribulation and judgment that awaits those who do not choose to commit their lives to him. So what is it that displeases God so much that when he comes to the end of his patience, he will pour out his wrath on the people of this planet? The first reason is worldliness. 
In verse 11, God says that he will punish the world. This refers back to the world system symbolized by Babylon in the book of Revelation. It's used in the very same sense that John uses the word world in this familiar passage in 1 John 2 verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, one of the reasons that God is doing is going to pour out his wrath during the day of the Lord is that he will destroy all the things in this world that distract people from worshipping God. Unbelievers are subject to worldliness, but John is writing to Christians and warning them not to be like the world. That applies to us. Christians are not to follow after worldly desires. We are instructed not to be greedy because greed is idolatry. The second reason is the world, the things of the world stop us from serving God. Actually, this builds up on the first reason, worldliness. We've already observed that if we are not faithful in serving God, he will set aside someone else to carry out his will. And what it is that usually keeps us from being able to faithfully serve the Lord is that we get distracted by the things of this world. The main problem is that we have a tendency to take those things that we have been given uh, for God's purposes and then twist them in order to satisfy our own fleshly desires. The Babylonians were a perfect example of that. We know that God has placed the celestial bodies in the sky as a testimony of his glory and also as a means of expressing the gospel message to all the peoples of the world. But the Babylonians took and twisted them into a system uh, of astrology that was used as a means to determine the will and intention of the gods. So it's quite fitting that one of the things that God is going to do in the day of judgment is to completely disrupt the normal cycles of the celestial objects that were used in that system. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to do exactly what the Babylonians did, but we just do it in a different way. We've taken the desires that God has given us and we've allowed the world system around us to pervert our ideas about how to satisfy those desires. The desire for security and acceptance come from God, just like our desires to eat and drink and our sexual desires. There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with those desires in and of themselves. We've allowed the world rather than the word of God to determine how we choose to satisfy those desires. And so instead of finding our acceptance and security in God, we turn to other people, to our jobs or to the government or to our possessions. Instead of satisfying our desires to eat and drink in moderation, we've become gluttons and drunkards. Instead of satisfying our sexual desires with marriage, the marriage relationship as God provided, we've turned to pornography and all kinds of sexual encounters which take place outside of the marriage of one man and one woman. And the result of all of this is that we either get distracted from serving God or we so ruin our witness for him that we are no longer capable of serving him effectively. And the third reason is pride and arrogance. 
in verses 11 and 14. This is a consistent theme throughout our study of Isaiah. And Isaiah certainly chose to use some harsh language to describe the pompous pride and the arrogance of Babylon. System. And then in verse 13 we get some insight into the degree of that sin. Even after the people witnessed firsthand the wrath of God, rather than turning to God, each person turns to his own people and flees to their own land. No wonder Isaiah describes them as being like sheep without a shepherd. They are so self-absorbed and so arrogant that even in the midst of God's judgment, they just go on back to the same people and to the same land. I'm reminded of this proverb in Proverbs 14 verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. Their old ways may seem right, but the end result is death. And this leads us to our final application this morning. Can we live humbly in reverent awe now or in utter anguish at the return of Jesus? Another way to put this principle is, would be to say that everyone is going to fear God, but we get to choose what kind of fear it will be today. For those who humbly submit their lives to God right now, they can experience the kind of fear that is commanded through all the Bible, a reverent awe for God. It's the kind of fear that causes us to acknowledge that we are incapable of dealing with our own sin on our own and that we are incapable of directing our own lives in a way that would make them pleasing to God. And so out of that awesome reverent awe, we yield to the control of our lives to Jesus and rely upon him to pay the penalty for our sin. Or we can be so proud and arrogant and say that we don't need God at all in our lives. We can take care of our own lives just fine, thank you. Well, there will come a day when we have to give an account where we stand before God and uh, give an account of our lives and come face to face with the wrath of God. And we will experience a whole different kind of fear as the writer of Hebrews explains, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. Isaiah describes in part what that fear will be like. Hands will be feeble. Hearts will melt. People will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them and they will be in anguish. God in his absolute sovereignty will carry out his purposes and plans and ways. He will accomplish his will with or without us. But I think we all agree that it would be much better uh, to be the one of his consecrated ones that carry out his will than being the object of his wrath. So let us live humbly in, awe, in reverent awe of God and not let the things of this world keep us from serving him. May God add his blessing to these thoughts from his word. And God bless you all. Thank you.